So we're starting a new teaching series from Hebrews 11 that we've called By Faith. Since faith is very important for everybody, no matter who you are, everybody lives by faith. Uh, Not everyone subscribes to the teachings of some of the world's major religions, but everybody uses, about their life, uses words like believe and hope and feel and trust to describe the way they live. And in that sense, everybody lives by faith. And in this series, we're looking at how those of us who believe in God are to live in this world and the impact that the kind of radical Christianity that we long to see, the impact that that kind of Christian life can have on the world around us. Um, C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia stories, once said, if you read your history, you will find that the Christians who began most or achieved most in this present world are precisely the ones who thought most about the next life and the next world. And actually today's subject, in many respects, follows quite naturally from the past few weeks. We've been talking uh, about greatness, what true greatness is and how we achieve it. And we discussed together last week that we don't need to all be like Jason. Um, Do we, Jason? No, absolutely not. We don't need to be like Jason, but greatness and significance doesn't come from me um, basically trying to copy the men around me who are more impressive than me in every respect. Instead, our significance and greatness comes from Christ. And this chapter follows naturally on from that because this discussion, this chapter that Polly read is, is the writer's way of saying, look at all these great men and women of history and how they've lived and what it is that set them apart. Many of the people that Polly read out would not have been considered great by our world's standards, would not have been held in high regard by their peers, and the world would likely have overlooked them. And yet they were great in God's eyes. Now for the church here in this letter, the temptation that they were facing wasn't the temptation to pursue alternative visions of significance or chase after celebrity status or comfort. It wasn't that that gave the writer the reason that he has to write it. Instead, what prompts this letter, what prompts this chapter is the temptation they were facing to shrink back from their Christian faith. You see, because of the increasing pressures uh, from the world around them and the real threat of violence on them due to their faith, some people were leaving the church and returning to their old way of living. Many of them were, were tempted to keep their heads down, to keep their faith under wraps and in private, to switch off their Christianity for an easy life. And the same temptation is there for us, not because of the same reason. We're not, we're not tempted to do that because of the threat of violence, but because of the desire within us to fit in to the world around us, to be like the society that we live in. And so what benefit is there then for those of us who have faith to hold on to that faith rather than just switch off our Christian faith? If you're going through pressure and difficulty, the idea of belonging to a community and coming each Sunday and hearing stories of people getting pregnant is hard if you've been trying for a baby and praying about it for many years. But nevertheless, the writer urges the people in this church, do not give up meeting together. It's good for you. And before we get into chapter, before we get into chapter 11, which we're going to be doing for the rest of the term now until Christmas, I want us to jump back a few verses into chapter 10, give us a bit of context and see what, see what prompts this, this uh, what would you call it, like a roll call of greatness uh, that he goes to in, in chapter 11. So, if you've got a Bible open, we're going to jump back to chapter 10, verse 32. He says to them, Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle. 
with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those mistreated. The word that he uses there for being publicly exposed, exposed is the word theater. These people had been made a theater of, a theater of humiliation, treated as sport because of their faith. And so then he continues them. How did you respond in light of that theater? For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then he launches into this by faith, or faith is the assurance of things hoped for. He could have jumped straight from this into chapter 12, which we didn't read. He could have gone for, we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Therefore, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely and let's run with perseverance. He could have done that. But he doesn't. He sandwiches it with this whole chapter, this long you know, excursion into greatness and what it looks like to live by faith for them. You see, this community of people knew friends who'd been imprisoned for their faith. They'd had their houses trashed and been stolen from. They needed endurance. But so do you. And so do I. And the past few weeks as a church, we've seen God do some really quite exciting things in the lives of people in this church. People being set free from things that have been holding them back for a long time. But also, alongside that, I know many of us have experienced mounting pressures. Just in this community, there have been several family bereavements, there have been children hospitalized, there have been near lethal accidents, sick family members, ongoing and still undiagnosed debilitating illnesses. There's increasing financial and work pressures for many of us. Just in the past few weeks, you and I need endurance. And again, I want to punch on the nose this idea that trouble and difficulty and the need for endurance is somehow a sign that God has left you or given up on you or is displeased with you or that the devil is in control of your life it's a lie i mean as we delve into hebrews 11 that's what we'll see week after week people who endured difficulty and are being held up as being great ones because of that i want to introduce my friend mostafa stand up for me this this is what we do to guests this is first time with us mostafa come up here come up here now some of you will recognize this man because Three years ago, I had the privilege of meeting him uh, in Turkey. Um, he was 27 at the time. You can do the maths on how old he is now. <laughs> he was 27 at the time, and he'd just arrived in Turkey from Iran, where he was from, where he was born, and he'd just spent three years in prison for his faith, being a Christian. And it was just such a privilege to meet this man. I never thought I'd get to bring him here and say, Look, look, here he is. This is Mostaba. Mostaba is a wonderful man, and, and by, Hebrews, by Hebrews and biblical standards, a great man. Someone that should be treated with incredible importance and significance because of what he's suffered and put up with for his faith as a Christian. 
And I'm pleased to say in a few weeks' time, Oscar was going to be preaching for us and going to be opening more of Hebrews 11 for us because I figured, who better to tell you what this means than someone who's actually lived it and knows what it looks like. But I wanted to get him up this morning to say, when you see him in the cafe, he looks like one of us, doesn't he? He looks like a normal, everyday human being. But this is a great one indeed. So it's a privilege to have you with us. Thank you so much for coming. Um, well done for enduring the embarrassment of standing up in front of people. Um, <laughs> We do this to every guest who's uh, first time with us this morning. So let's give him a big hand. You can sit back down. There we go. Because you are loved, because you have trusted in God, because of those things, you experience difficulty. Not because God's angry at you or opposed to you or the devil's tormenting you, because you are saved and secure and belong to God, the enemy wants to torment you. He will. We shouldn't be surprised at that then. Therefore, the appropriate thing when someone's suffering, whether it's through physical sickness or mental sickness, is to encourage them that not only does their endurance through this trial validate their faith, it also points to the fact that they are highly significant and in fact great in the kingdom of God. It's rarely, if ever, appropriate to tell anyone that they're being tormented by the devil or that God is punishing them. If they themselves feel themselves to be afflicted by the devil, that's a different thing, and I wouldn't want to ignore that. But it's rarely kind or helpful or wise to diagnose someone else's condition for them. And since I'm near the subject, I wanted to just allow me to just say this. If we wouldn't tell someone who had a, a broken leg that they were afflicted by the devil then why would we say that someone who has mental illness is afflicted by the devil? We shouldn't. The devil works on us through lies and discouragements, trying to wear us down and get us to lose sight of our ultimate goal. That's the enemy's realm, lies and discouragement and deception. Is it possible to have a broken leg or to have cancer or to have a bad back and also at the same time be worn down by the enemy's lies and discouragements, to be bound up in them? Yes, it is. But we recognize that those are two different things, don't we? The illness and the deception. Suffering poor mental health is the same. Is there a physical illness there that needs compassion and that needs to be cured? Yes, there is. Can that person at the same time still experience deception from the enemy? Yes, but they're distinct. And since mental illness is an illness of the mind, it can sometimes be harder for us and for that person to see the line between the two. Nevertheless, the response of the Christian to the person with a broken leg or a broken mind should be the same. Compassion, understanding, prayer, love, service. In verse 34, he says, you had compassion on those in prison. It says you had compassion on those in prison. Compassion is the right response. It doesn't say you unearthed the demon and got the demon out of them. I'm not belittling anything in the spiritual realm. I'm just wanting to speak into that since I'm near the subject. We'll come back from that. But it's important for us. Compassion is the right response to trial for the church. Prayer, sympathy. Endurance is needed, whatever we're facing. Since God's work rarely gets done in a day or even in several days. You see, what God is doing in your life, and it, what God is doing in your life isn't done yet. And it won't be done for some time. And the writer of this letter has confidence in the church. And I have confidence in you and in us 
but his confidence doesn't come from their behavior and how they're bearing up necessarily under trial. Because they handled it well one day means that they might handle it badly on another day. So where does his confidence come from? His confidence comes from what he says when he says this, We are not those who shrink back, but of those who have faith. His confidence comes from their identity, the sort of people they are. He says, at their core, at their heart, at their root, these people are people who have faith. And that faith means that, one, it means that they won't shrink back, and two, it means that their faith will preserve their souls and bring them safe to the shore of heaven. That's the role of faith for the Christian. It preserves your soul and it enables you to endure. I want to talk about the role of faith and the um, identity, the role of faith and the, the the place of faith in the life of the Christian. Now, a few years ago, a few years ago, a few months ago, I spent an evening with Ray, uh, Sir Raynald Fiennes, who is the um, what is that? He's England's greatest ever polar explorer. Um, I have to say, I spent an evening with him with several hundred other people, but I was there. And someone in the course of that evening asked him, what is it that makes a great polar explorer? Do they need to be like Jason? Sorry, Jason. I won't ever do that again, I promise. Now, Raynaud Fiennes has been on expeditions with dozens of different people, often alone in difficult and hostile environments for months at a time. He says to them, what makes for a successful explorer, in his experience, are people who have faith. That's what he said. He said that people who have faith seem to be made of tougher stuff than people without faith. Now that's the opposite from how many people, most people in our society think and feel about faith and belief. We treat faith as though it's a weakness of the mind, a crutch that people need to lean on, something that makes a person lack. Faith, however, means that we are those who don't shrink back. We're those who preserve our souls. So we're to not dial down our pursuit of God. We're not to switch off our Christianity. Don't retreat. You and I have need of endurance, and there's nothing else on the shelf that can give you the endurance you need like Jesus can. So that's the role of faith in the life of a Christian. But what about the nature of faith? You see, faith preserves our souls, we're told, which it's nice, but it kind of begs the, the question, what is faith? And in Hebrews 11, that's how he starts. Now, faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is assurance, confidence. It is conviction. It is resolve. It is substance. Again, how different those words sound from the words that many of us and many in our world think about faith. Their definitions of faith probably range from softer words like hope, belief, trust, through to harsher words like delusion, guesswork, or naivety. You see, our society likes to caricature people of faith as being superstitious, naive, people who are opposed to reason or to logic. To believe in God is treated with the same disdain as believing in fairies is. They're both put in the same junk drawer of religious beliefs. What's more, faith, the word and the idea, is often set against science. And people are told they have to choose between science and being a thinking person or faith and being an unthinking person. And sometimes people say, I wish I could have your faith, but I just can't. 
which is a, a nice sentiment. But often what's underneath that is, I wish I could switch off my brain to the plain evidence in front of me and be as delusional as you, because you seem happy. But I just can't. I have a good friend of mine who's a very thoughtful atheist, and he said he often comes to Kings, stands at the back and thinks, I want some of what these people are smoking, because they look happy. He thinks it's a, a happiness and a delusion that comes from some shared willingness to deceive ourselves and not look at the evidence of things. That's why it feels strange for us, isn't it? To read that faith, according to the Bible, is assurance and conviction and even understanding. In verse 3, he says, we understand, by faith, we understand that God created the world. Now, in, in the writer's day, actually, he's saying, we un- by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is visible is not made out of things that are visible, or whatever Polly said that undid the whole thing, which was amusing. He's saying, we understand. In, in, this day, in his day, the controversial aspect of that was he was saying the universe is created and not eternal. In the, whatever is it, 1940s? I can't remember. 1940s, a Belgian priest named Georges Lemaitre came up with the idea of the, what became called the Big Bang. It was a Christian who came up with that, the idea of the Big Bang. And the reason that was controversial was because he was saying the universe actually, according to science, has a beginning. And people at the time thought, we can't allow that idea to stand because if it has a beginning, then possibly it has a beginner. And that's not acceptable to us. So, but in his day, that's not the controversy. The controversy is, it isn't eternal, it's created. That's what we believe. In our day, it's, it was created by a being. It's not just a random accident. Anyway, I digress. But the way that the writer talks about faith, assurance, understanding, conviction, tells me something about faith. About how the Bible writers see faith and where we're wrong. And we're wrong because of the society that we live in and how we've been conditioned to think about faith. And so let's take a moment to, to, to think and talk about the difference between facts and values, which is a, a separation in our society that's existed for the past 500 years um, following the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. We divide the world into two things, facts and values. Facts, we're told, are statements about the world that everyone is meant to hold to. And these are statements that are scientifically verifiable. Facts are a body of knowledge that is supposed to be independent of personal commitment. Facts appear in in, in textbooks in classrooms without the statements we believe because it's supposed to be self-evident or it's supposed to be true regardless of whether the person reading them or not believes them. So it's not a we believe, it's a this is. In that sense, facts belong to the public life and public discussion of our society. On the other hand, we have values. Values are opinions and ideas and beliefs about the world. And these can vary from person to person, from household to household, from religion to religion. Values are important, but they they, they aren't meant to be, or they're not fit to be, preached about or talked about in public. And they're instead things that must be held by people in private I mean, you can put them on your office wall and say, these are our values of this company. That's lovely, but you can't insist on that because it's not a fact. That's one of the reasons why, for example, English people and Westerners in general find it difficult to talk about religion in a way that people from the rest of the world don't. Because we've been conditioned to think religion belongs to values, which belongs to private life rather than public life. Now, facts are arrived at and discovered by examining the different component parts of a thing, and that discovery is disconnected from the goal and purpose of a thing. 
So the basic molecular structure of a table, say, is a fact. The purpose of a table for sitting at or eating dinner at is a value. And this approach to scientific uh, analysis, the, per- the, the approach that separates the purpose of a thing, um, f- it f- separates the purpose of the thing from the, the component parts of a thing to ana- analyze it, this has led to massive technological advancements. And so when people say that, so if someone thinks that you're being non-scientific, they think that you're wishing you had your dentistry done by a medieval surgeon rather than a modern day one. But we wouldn't, of course we wouldn't. Because we appreciate all the benefits of this approach of the scientific analysis process. To remove the end and the purpose and just say, well, ignore that and let's just break it down into its various parts. It's a useful thing that has caused a lot of development, development across the world. Now, what this f- discussion has to do with what I'm talking about today will become clear. Because the, the question is, is faith a fact or a value? For me to say you were created for God, by God, to, to enjoy God, if that's true as a fact, it's a very different statement than the way that the world thinks about it. Now for the Bible writers and for Christians, to have faith is to believe that the purpose of a thing is equally important to understanding the thing as its various component parts are. And in that sense, the Bible refuses to use the modern categorization of fact and value and instead insists on talking about a thing's and a person's purpose in order for us to understand it. Everything on earth finds a purpose in the mind of God. And that purpose isn't something that can be understood simply by examining the molecular or genetic structure of a thing. In fact, we would even probably go so far as to say that understanding everything about a thing, understanding all of its atoms and molecules, doesn't take you very far at all in trying to understand it. Only a clear grasp of a thing's purpose will do that. Let me ground this. You see, a a good computer technician isn't just a person who can tell you how your computer works. They have to also be able to increase your computer's productivity and usefulness. And for that to occur, that requires a knowledge of not just the various parts, but it requires them to keep a handle on the purpose that the machine was made for. A good physio, a good physiotherapist, isn't just someone who understands how the body works, but a person who can manipulate the various parts of the body toward the designed and desired outcome. A good physio is aiming to restore the various parts of the body to keep them in line with their originally intended purpose. In that sense, we understand the world and we appraise the world based on purpose, even if we think that we don't need to worry about purpose when it comes to a lot of the bigger things in life. Hopefully, this is becoming clearer to the surface of what we're talking about and why this matters. Now, science is the ability to explore, then, the various what's of the universe. But to understand what a thing is, you need to keep one hand on the why a thing is as well. And that why a thing exists requires an explanation of its purpose. And that explanation can only be arrived at by faith. The life of faith is the ability then to do both well. To keep one handle on the why 
and one handle on the what. The life of faith is the ability to keep one eye on the destination and remain attentive to the journey. And it's faith like that that preserves your soul. Faith like that is essential to life, whoever you are. You see, when a field agent loses sight of their mission's objective, they become useless. When an explorer forgets where they're trying to get to, they get lost. When an athlete loses sight of why they're running, they slow down or they stop altogether. You see, in order to bear the pain of burning muscles and aching lungs, the runner needs to keep an eye on their goal. When a Christian forgets the goal of life, the goal of their life, they drift, they coast, they shrink back, they blend in to the world around them. And we have to believe that the goal that we're heading for is worth the process to keep us gunning for it. You see, a mother who's fighting the courts to get help for her child doesn't ever need, may get worn down, um, but she'll never give up. Because no matter what the cost, she thinks that the goal is worth all the pain that she'll have to go through to get the help for her child. That's what Paul means when in Romans chapter 8, he, he says, aware of everything, all of the pain and the suffering that many of you have been through and that he's going through at the time, all of the, the persecution he's experiencing, he says this, I consider, which is a, a word that belongs in the faith category, I consider that this present time, this present suffering is not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. You can only say things like that if you are keeping one handle on the future and the goal and one handle on the present. I consider that all of this is not worth it compared to the glory that awaits us. Those of us who are the most mindful of this, this double dynamic, those of us who keep one handle on the future and the present, in this life are going to be the most effective and frankly, this is why I'm not a gym goer. It's why I can't be going, be doing with the whole going to the gym thing that I know a lot of people love. I can't do exercise for exercise's sake. I just don't care enough about being beach body ready or whatever the phrase is. I don't care enough about getting healthy. For me, there needs to be an opponent to beat. There needs to be a short-term goal, like a bull to chase, someone to crush which probably says more about my psychological state than anything else. It says more about my insecurity. In fact, this past week, someone said to me that whenever her husband comes home and, and tells her about his, you know, victories on some court somewhere, she, she says she finds herself biting her tongue because she just wants to say, and what would happen if you didn't win? To which the only appropriate answer is, we would die. <laughs> Because often I'll come home and I'll, I'll, you know, if I've won a game of squash, Amy doesn't need to ask. I'll tell her. And I'll tell her how close it was. And I'm sure at times she probably wants to say, um, this matters because? To which, again, I'll say, because I would die if I didn't win. In fact, I, I'm a little, this might, may, may seem a little bit, um, what's the word, weird or morbid. But often when I'm playing squash and it's close and it's like a tight game and I really need to try to motivate myself to keep my eye on the prize and make the prize worth the pain, I'll tell myself, if you lose this next point, your kids will die. <laughs> and I will just tell that, your kids will die, your kids will die. My kids have died many times over, because not even that is enough to motivate me at times. And so sometimes I come home from the squash court and I'm like, you're alive! 
Now, faith is the ability to keep the purpose and the goal in mind. And for that, it requires understanding. It requires assurance. It requires conviction. It requires confidence. You know, the most important command in the Old Testament is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love God with our muscle, and that involves the muscle of our mind. Think. Weak faith is often the result of not loving God enough with your mind. We allow doubts to go unanswered and questions to swim around in our minds for weeks and for months and for years on end, never having the confidence to stare those questions down and never noticing that all the while we're not doing that. They're eroding our confidence. They're eroding our faith. They're eroding our ability to trust God. You see, that's why the object of our faith matters. You see, we are not hoping in the government to fix things. We're not hoping in the scientists to discover enough about the what's of the world to give sense to all the whys of the world. We're not hoping in the philosophers to prove our case eventually. We are hoping in the trustworthiness and the goodness of God. You see, soon as a church, we will exchange contracts on a building in the town centre. Soon. I reassure you, soon. Which means before the next millennium. We will do that. And once we've exchanged, we have the promise that a completion date will come. And in that period of time, however long it is, we can live in the good of that completion. We can make decisions based on that. We can buy chairs and one to share, knowing that the building will be ours. And then there'll be a whole heap of other challenges for us to overcome. What is the basis on which we can hope and have confidence in God? Is it that we feel the presence of God? We feel that he's close to us. We feel his love. It is if you're only trying to love God with all your heart, perhaps. What is the basis of our hope? Is it that we're convinced that God's a God of justice and so we can work hard to do the things that God would want us to do on the world? We can if we're trying to love God with all of our strength. But our confidence goes broader than that and is bigger than that. Our confidence comes from the, the ability for us to love God with all of our mind and decide based on who God is, based on what God has done in history, in our lives and in the past. We can hold true to God. We can trust him. We can look beyond even the veil of death and find confidence and reassurance there. Jesus' resurrection was the validation of a man and a moment in history. It was a promise that says to the world who put their hope in him and trust in him that Jesus is able to bring you safe to eternity sure, safe into the presence of God for full. That's our hope. That's our confidence. Jesus' death on the cross may have looked like a moment of weakness, the death of just another criminal or another would-be Messiah. But two days later, that same man rose from the dead. He's the first of his kind. And he has ever since then been transforming men and women throughout the world, forgiving them, removing their shame, giving them confidence before God, and a hope that's so strong not even the grave can take it away. So we can say with confidence that you and I were made by God, for God, to know God, to enjoy God, and to give glory to God. That's our purpose. That's how you understand a human being best. Not by breaking us down into all of our component parts. 
and understanding our genetic history. Useful, very useful, but it doesn't go anywhere to tell you what you're here for or who you're here for. You see, God is both the source of our faith and joy and also he's the goal that we're heading towards. You and I are not made for this world. We're made for the next world. Heaven may not be something that is talked about too often. It doesn't belong to the world of facts and so it isn't welcome in public discussion. It might not be in favour with the intellectual classes in our society but it's never been disproved. Neither for that matter has hell And yet Christians find themselves not thinking often about heaven or the reality of hell. It makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to get those looks from the people in our office place or place where we work perhaps. But our hope of heaven, of being with God, is a hope that comes from the man Jesus who's the only man in all of history who's ever been through death and come out the other side. And he's told us what to expect. He's told us of the terrors that lie in wait for us, but he's also offered us our hope, and our hope that starts small in this life but finds its full flowering in the next. Now, I heard a while ago that one of the most positive experiences in a person's life is to hear their boss give them a well done and to praise them publicly in front of their colleagues. It gives you a hit of happiness and of dopamine that you can ride for days. Brothers and sisters, we need to think more about the ultimate well done that we're going to, hoping to receive one day on the other side of the grave, when God himself, when all of creation finds itself before the judgment seat of God, and God the Father says over his people, well done, well done, good and faithful one. You who did not shrink back under pressure and difficulty and heartache and hardship, well done. And the way you hear that well done in the present, the way you live with that moment in mind, is you need to exercise the organ of faith. With our eyes, we'll get conviction of the seen. It's with our faith that we'll get conviction of the unseen. And to the degree that you exercise that organ, to the degree you exercise it in your life, that faith preserves you. It stops you being reduced to just a computer made of flesh and blood and bones, but a computer nonetheless. It enables you to be fully human and to see that you are a creature made with a purpose to know God. That's both the role of faith and the nature of faith. That's how we grow in greatness. That's why it matters for us. That's why we need to not shrink back or throw away our confidence, but continue to hope in and to look to our Savior Jesus, the one who's able to preserve us no matter what prison we're in, whether it's in a prison in Iran or a prison of our mind or a prison of our body that we feel is holding us back. It is our ability to see Jesus, the great liberator, who whispers in our ears, sometimes quietly, sometimes loudly, that this earth is not your home. You're made for more. C.S. Lewis, again, he says, if we find in ourselves desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, they're there to tell us that we were made for something beyond this world. Let's pray together and respond to Jesus in worship.